Bueller. <laughs> yeah. How's it I'm fucking going, dude? Good. I'm sunburnt as hell. Nice. Been really hot in Vancouver and uh, spent a couple days on the beach. And now I'm in the peeling stage. So there's a little circle of skin around my office oh, chair. Oh, delightful. Really, really gross. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but besides that, doing quite well. But um, but you, so you, uh, over the last couple weeks, you wrote a really interesting piece about peer review. And I would know that our audience would love to hear about the theses in that and yeah abolish it all dude abolish it all that's yeah that's so claim. so what's the main case the, the main claim uh the main claim is just that pre-publication peer review is not doing its job and in recent years there's been an explosion of preprint servers in various fields uh in particular computer science physics math and preprint servers are actually where most of the action happens um especially if you consider cs right like the typical the norm there is like you write a paper you submit it to a conference you put it upload it on archive everyone knows about it because it's on archive you talk about it people cite it and then if it gets into the conference great yeah. um <laughs> right and then like that's, a nice extra on the side yeah, exactly and then maybe you give a talk and then maybe a few more people hear about it but you know it's indexed by google scholar on archive etc so you know preprint servers are already doing the job of disseminating the latest scientific advances in these fields and, and archive is the biggest one right archive is the biggest one and is mostly technically focused so it's statistics computer science physics math there's some quantitative biology and stuff on there but but it's mostly focused on technical subjects but there are preprint service for other disciplines so yeah econ has its own stuff uh there's now preprint service for chemistry and psychology there's bioarchive sciarchive etc but anyway so this is like explosion of preprint servers um and they my claim is just these do the job actually super well like mm-hmm. if, you, if you think of what we want the publication process and like just how scientific should how science like how we want it to advance Preprint service almost get us like all the way there. Hmm. Uh, and this weird stamp of approval by anonymous referees who like sometimes know things about your paper often don't even understand like some of the, your main hmm. arguments or just aren't familiar with the field. This is kind of a relic of like times past and we should hmm. just we should just let it go. And so the, there's the that main claim that just preprint servers are, are doing most of the work for us already. And we should just basically abolish pre-publication peer review and rely on preprint servers. Hmm. Then there's the additional like two claims one is just to add commenting capacity mm, to archive. Yeah, I like that one a lot. That was great. Yeah. And so there's like pros and cons there. And there's a super interesting discussion there to be had actually of like how exactly you would do that. I'm kind of envisioning something like Reddit style or like EA yeah. forum, right? Where you have like upvote, downvote, and you try and cultivate a lot of conversation. Um, obviously, you could see it going sideways where like if you know no, no one comments on anything or, or it's just yeah. overrun with bad things. I think you could set the incentives such that that doesn't happen, but that's always a worry. Um, and then the final proposal is to introduce or rather more heavily rely on these things called overlay journals which basically they, they're called overlay because that was new to me yeah yeah because they like sit on top of preprint servers so they don't publish anything themselves they're basically just like curated collections hmm. of papers from the preprint server right so like there's one in math called discrete analysis i think by hmm. t- uh some famous mathematician whose name i'm blanking on right now but the idea is to just like you know People either can submit their preprints to them or the editors can go look on the preprint server like, oh, what are nice papers? And then they just like point people towards the, mm. the best papers. Um, and so the main advantage of these is they can be like retrospective in nature, right? Like they don't have to they don't have to judge the the the, the paper independently of like how the community is receiving it. You know, mm. they could like you can imagine retrospective journals that like or these these overlay journals that evaluate papers like five years 
after they've been on the archive, hmm. right? And then they're like, well, this paper actually had a huge impact. So we're going to put that in our journal. And hmm. so in this way, you could start incentivizing like real com- impact instead of just getting it past the referee process, right? Like hmm. if if you started... Yeah, these journals started like curating collections of the papers that had like, you know, the most citations over time. All of a sudden, researchers are now thinking on like a longer time horizon, right? They're like, I don't want to just publish 15 papers this year. I want to publish like four really good papers Mm. um, that stand a chance in five years time of being like more heavily recognized. Anyway, so it's just a collection of thoughts about how to Mm -hmm. push us more towards this uh, preprint world. I found myself agreeing with all of it, which makes for a not super interesting discussion. <laughs> yeah. So actually, one one bit of pushback I did get, which I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on, is like, should comments, if you enabled that system, like you put commenting on archive, should they be anonymous? Should they be allowed to be anonymous? Or do you, or should they be tied to an academic hmm. profile? Like, I mean, I kind of like the idea of anonymous commenting, but I can't make the assent- incentives work in my head right like i feel like non-anonymous yeah. makes you be more serious and yeah. like let more fair about your comments because like the papers aren't anonymous right so right. people who are commenting on papers presumably have submitted papers themselves and yeah I, i'd be pretty in favor of like having a profile and and just having accountability with your comments and then you could perhaps have like a almost like a twitter blue checkmark system where maybe it's possible to have like comment anonymously, but that's in a different section of the comment feed or you have like your certified commenters, maybe authors of other archive submissions have like a profile already. Um, And so it's just like, you want to prioritize those, those comments. Yeah. That's quite interesting. When you're accountable to your writing, I think it forces, incentivizes you to write more carefully. Um, Yeah. Also, it's a great point that the authors are not anonymous, which makes it. So if there's anonymous commenting, it's like a weird asymmetry. Yeah. Um, and, and there's so it, other places yeah. to do anonymous commenting. Like you can comment on Reddit using like a throwaway account that's or, true. That's true. or what have you. But um, I'm sure there's some people who don't publish very much, but like to comment on other work and stuff. And uh, yeah, that's dude. And, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, if this went well, I could see there being like an industry of students who actually aren't that interested in like doing their own research, but are much more in like the criticism vein, right? Like yeah, their whole yeah. point is like, they're really interested in trying to reproduce things or trying to point out errors, right? And you could just let them go nuts. And if there was some way, like what what the non-anonymous system does is let them gain status from their mm-hmm. comments, right? Like if they're if they're commenting on on super good work, uh, like a Michael Jordan paper, say mm-hmm. Michael Jordan mm-hmm. is a is a just a huge name in, in machine learning, and and can point out an error, right? They can gain mm-hmm. like big status, yeah, in, yeah, in that yeah. way, right? And yeah. and so you can incentivize people. I mean, there's some people who like aren't that interested in writing papers and want to do the other thing. Right. And so insofar as you can let them do that, that'd be fucking awesome. Yeah. And, and like so often the process of reading a paper, like carefully or in detail is like writing notes to yourself, uh, finding things that you're confused about and have like, and all of that is just right now locked up in each grad student's notebook, but you can imagine people taking that and then turning these questions into questions that the authors have to respond to. Um, and yeah, just having much more interaction between author and reader, I think, is such a great, great idea. Um, well, sadly, we can't debate about things. But, yeah. uh, that's, yeah. Do you want to get into this doozy of a chapter? I'm so this was a fucking. That's so, this is a clusterfuck. It's a cluster, <laughs> absolute clusterfuck. Um, um, I just okay, okay. Before we even before we even start, I have yeah. to point out 
his very okay so we're talking about chapter 13 mostly of conjectures and refutations and before we even get into the thesis chapter 12 and 13 oh uh, sorry 12 is the main one 13 is a bit of commentary yeah okay good i was like fuck did i read the wrong chat no, no okay yeah, 12, <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was so scared there oh geez i was like no wonder this didn't make any sense um so chapter yeah so chapter 12 is the main one so this is yeah confusing as fuck but then his last paragraph his conclusion is about obscurantism and he's complaining about obscurantism from other people yeah. i'm like dude you just wrote the most confusing fucking paper i've ever read in my life shut <laughs> up like you cannot say anything about obscurantism right now like jesus totally and it's like this is i think the first one we've read from the conjectures and refutation series where we're pretty critical of it and where like i beat my head against this one for a good like couple weeks and <laughs> yeah. but i so the big caveat emptor i want to offer is that excuse me the listener should read this essay themselves because everything we're about to say about it like i don't <laughs> even know if it's totally correct or not um, yeah. <laughs> and so i like i think i know what he's trying to do but um it'll be so interesting to see how our two readings differ and uh and just anything we say the listener should probably verify them themselves on this particular particular one um i'm gonna get a drink first and let's dive into this shit boom okay drink in hand got my good buddy benny chug from stanford law my name is vaden masrani from university of british columbia doing our intros and uh today we're doing the conjectures and refutations series episode some number uh and we're talking about uh mainly chapter 12 and uh, perhaps a little bit of chapter 13 because uh, they go together of um the book and the title of the chapter is language and the body mind problem a restatement of interactionism so where do we even want to begin <laughs> I, th- <laughs> I think it's probably worth just giving before we dive into the chapter giving some background on like the mind body problem yeah or as popper calls it the the body mind problem yeah, i don't know why he inverts it like that <laughs> Like everybody else on the planet says mind body problem, but he insists on saying body mind problem everywhere. I I actually think there's probably a proper English way it should be said. And my sense is it's probably mind body just because that's what everyone has reverted to. But you can can honestly tell if you really disliked Popper's philosophy, why he was so annoying to people. Like (laughs) I can understand, especially if you like, you know, it helps that we like agree with a lot of what he's saying. And yeah. so it makes it more, uh, makes it go down a little smoother. But if you disagree with his philosophy and he like did shit like this, you'd just be like, this fucking <laughs> asshole. Like, what? This fucking guy. <laughs> this guy. Yeah. Um, this g- <laughs> okay. Okay. So mind body problem, roughly, right? We're talking about the relationship between the physical world and the world of mental states. And there's a debate that has raged since a long time ago (laughs) like at least you know this is like came up a lot in greek philosophy and presumably before that of like what the actual relationship is between these things um and one there's one school of thought uh it's called monism or sometimes physicalism that says talking there is no world of like mental states really that's separate from the physical world right like everything it's also called materialism uh sometimes right so everything we care about can be boiled down to talking about like physical stuff um often at like fundamental uh physical levels so talking about like atoms and um and bodies moving and stimuli response so you know everything we care about whether it's the stock market or art and stuff it's really comes down to material physical substances in the world then there's a separate 
take on the problem, which says that actually uh, there there's a distinction between the physical world and the world of mental states. Uh, that's typically called dualism. Dualism is weird because it can come in several forms. There's like a spiritual sort of version of it that you might hear espoused by more like religious thinkers or even people like I think Descartes was more along this line where like there's physical stuff in the physical world and then there's some sort of like wooey uh consciousness field stuff that we like can't understand maybe it's like the spiritual realm or something and maybe this interacts with the physical world in some way and maybe it doesn't or or there's like more sort of sober versions of dualism which just say there's like physical stuff there's mental stuff uh, possibly they interact, possibly they don't, but it it, it makes <laughs> yeah, yeah. it makes sense to talk about these in different ways. Um, and so not everything in the mental world can just be boiled down to talking about physical substrates and stuff. And then interaction is so so Popper famously like we covered in we did an episode on the three worlds, didn't we? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so he 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 kind of takes dualism one step further, and he's a pluralist. Uh, so he would actually posit the w- worlds one, two, and three. Right. So he has like world one of the physical world, two of the mental. And then on that's sort of the classic dualist picture. And then on top of this, he adds world three, which are products of the human mind, uh, which can be considered considered like separate objects in and of themselves. Right. Like a concert or an art work of art or mathematics or a symphony, that kind of stuff. And then other people can take these ideas and idea space and work with them. And so these worlds interact with one another. And so he, that's why he calls himself an interactionist because the, there's these separate worlds, one, two, and three, but they interact with one another and can influence uh, one yeah. another. Okay. How am I doing? Is this, is, yeah, I think that's, that's a decent setup for. Yeah. And maybe one tiny caveat I would add is uh, you said it goes back to the pre-Socratics. I think um, Descartes is the one to first at least popularize the mind body okay. problem. Right. So people often will talk about Cartesian mind body, uh, the Cartesian mind body problem. And, and he actually thought that the interact, he was an interactionist as well, like Popper. So he didn't think yeah. these worlds were completely separate, but he thought the interaction occurred very specifically in the pineal gland, right? Oh yeah, that's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I totally forgot that. That's yeah. great. Yeah. If only it was that easy. Just yeah, the pineal just, gland is where like separate yeah. worlds and then boom, pineal yeah. gra- gland brings it all yeah. together. Yeah. So when people say like Cartesian dualism, this is what they're, they're talking about typically. So, so that, so that's uh, okay. So, um, this is the subject of this essay. So he's trying to attack the mind body problem. Um, and he's going to use language, a uh, new theory of language to do so. Um, so the title of the essay, once again, is language and the body mind problem, um, a restatement of interactionism and kind of the new idea, the, the thing that he's going to bring to this is this theory of language, which we'll get into. I, I don't want to cut you off though, but, um, but just, so it's going to be the mind body problem and a discussion of how language uh, plays with that. And these are the two components that we're thinking about today. Yeah. Nice. So his first sentence kind of sets the stage. It's, this is a paper on the impossibility of a physicalistic causal theory of human language. What do you think that? Okay. So yeah, let's, so, let's okay, just so, spend a minute talking about what that means. Exactly. Totally. And this is where I think Popper's never usually like this, but in this essay, he uses so much philosophical jargon terms, which I'm sure he's using precisely, but he doesn't really help the reader along with him. Yeah. Um, so that's part of the difficulty of this essay is that, uh, there's a lot of these terms like physicalistic causal theory of human language. What I think he means by this is so people say things and later in the essay, he's going to use the example of a complicated machine that says the word Mike every time a cat walks past. And what is the cause of people saying things? 
what he's going to want to say is it's their mind. Um, what he's going to try to argue against is a physicalistic causal story of language. So which one would say the cat walking past a person causes photons to hit their retina, which causes their neurons to fire in a particular way, which causes them to utter the word Mike. So he wants to say the locus of causality starts with the, the mind and it isn't purely a physical thing which produces linguistic statements. It's the, the, the locus of causality is in the mind. I think that's what he's arguing for. And what he's arguing against is any theory, any linguistic theory or any philosophical theory which says, no, 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 human language is purely a physical, physically caused uh, phenomenon. That's my inter- interpretation of that. I don't know. How, did, how does that square with yours? Nice. I think that basically lands with how I was thinking about it. Okay. One point of confusion for me is whether... Okay, yeah, so causal theory of human language, like, it's obviously everything is causal at some point, right? I don't think there's an uncausal theory or a non-causal theory of human language. So he's arguing about the type of causality, mm-hmm. right? And he's arguing against a physicalist causal theory. Because he wants to say, so he's, he's very much a pluralist in the sense that he wants to recognize the existence of things like problems, ideas, mm-hmm. and minds alongside alongside things like body, blood, and bone, say. Mm. Um, And so he's very focused on the physical Mm. aspect of it. And I should also say that I think part of the reason the essay doesn't totally land, with at least with me, is because he takes quite a strong stance against determinism. Yes, exactly. And I'm a staunch determinist. (laughs) And I think that whenever people start arguing against determinism, it starts to slip into fuzzy arguments. And um, But he's arguing against physical determinism but i don't think he anywhere in his writing he talks about like non-physical determinism because ideas can cause other ideas which can cause other ideas so if you include in the chain of causality non-physical stuff i think his essay just wouldn't really apply he's not talking about non-physical causes which like writing and ideas problems um Mm. these kind of things also right causal force um and he would he would i don't think object to that okay i think that's right one point of confusion for me that's maybe I don't know if it's best gotten into here or later is, is he saying that causation is not happening at a physical level or it's best understood not at a physical level? So taking example, right? It might be best understood why I'm responding to you right now, right? That causal claim might be best understood at an ideas level. So you've just told me something I'm reacting to that idea, and now I'm bringing to bear an argument in response. Okay, so that's one causal yeah. analysis of the situation. Another one, which is maybe more in the like what he's arguing against, is that there's something happening in my brain. There's a stimulus that I'm receiving from the screen. It's causing certain atoms and neurons to do shit in my brain. That's causing my brain to rewire and fire in a certain way, and then you know that's causing my muscles to do something, and now my mouth mm-hmm. is spreading out some sound. So both of these seem correct to me. It's just that one is a much better, it's like an explanation at the level that we actually care about, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's much better to understand our conversation as one in which we're responding to one another's ideas, as opposed to one in which we're responding to stimuli of sound and light and stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So is he saying that, is he talking about 
the level of just what's how should we understand human language and and the mind? Or is he is his claim even stronger that there's literally no physicalistic cause of me responding to you right now? I think he's arguing at the level of understanding, but that's vague in the way he's discusses it. Yeah, um, I agree. I agree. I think this where it breaks down. So later on in the essay, third to last sentence, he's, he says, we are then the first movers or the creators of physical causal chains. So when he says that, that doesn't sound like it's at the level of understanding. That sounds like it's at the level of, is it metaphysics or ontology? I, I don't even know the, right, the right. term, but I think he wants to say that we create causal chains. Right. Um, which is not saying it's these causal chains are best understood at the level of, say, the third world. He's saying we actually can do yeah. this. And that's why I think he has not provided nearly yeah. a, str- a strong enough case to, to make that claim. I should say that it looks like there's a lot of different kinds of determinism out there, okay. um, which I didn't really appreciate. And I think one kind of determinism is physicalist. It's, it's all billiard balls colliding into other billiard balls. But the one thing that he is adamantly opposed to is this idea that you can um, predict future states with certainty. So it's right. about this prediction thing. Right. And as far as I know, he hasn't written about chaos theory. But I think that's so key when you think about determinism because chaos theory, the key point of it is that you have deterministic systems which are fundamentally not predictable. Mm-hmm. And they're not predictable because to predict such a system, um, so think of like a a ball in a pachinko machine like colliding against the um, <laughs> I think okay. no one's gonna understand that reference unless they lived in japan <laughs> oh yeah fair, fair. Uh, a, a ball hitting some aluminum pegs until it has to fall and uh actually no i was just watching stranger things and there's a pachinko machine in stranger things oh are you serious so there yeah yeah with the um, noises and everything like this thing. um no i don't know if there's the noises yeah. but she drops a like a uh, a coin at the top and has to use her like mental telepathy to like move it. To oh, the right. damn. Um, but uh, chicken <laughs> machines are chaotic systems because they are infinitely sensitive to the position, the initial position of the, the ball at the top. Hmm. And so because we can never know anything with an infinite degree of precision, we can never predict with an infinite degree of accuracy. And so I say this because it's important that determinism not equal predictability. Um, and I think that if Popper knew that, then he... Uh, wouldn't be as strongly against determinism because he argues against this idea that it's possible to, I think in one of his writings, um, he says it's possible to predict like Mozart's concerto based on looking at Mozart's brain. Um, the deter- Sorry, determinism would say that it would be possible to predict Mozart's concertos by looking at Mozart's brain. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you view human beings and complex systems as chaotic systems, mm-hmm. these are specifically the ones that you can't make such a prediction because you can't know anything to an yeah. infinite degree of precision. So that's just important because when he argues against determinism, I think in the back of his mind, he's arguing a, against uh, predictability. Um, yeah. That's, yeah, that's yeah. not, that's not a perfect analogy because I think determinism can also, some kinds of determinism can include physicalism. So it's all just electrons colliding with each other in, in the void. And so he may be arguing against a physical kind of determinism as well. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's my sense too. It's like he, he, he had such a bone to pick with historicism and then anything that he thought could weaken his case a little bit against <laughs> historicism, he was like, no, must attack, must attack. And attack! so he just went overboard yeah. on on determinism. Yeah, maybe it would be helpful to talk about the structure of the essay just from a high level. So the essay comes in seven pieces. The first piece he spends basically rejecting a number of bad solutions to the mind-body 
problem. And I'll go into those in a sec. In the next section two, it's titled The Four Major Functions of Language. He lays out Carl Bueller. Bueller. Carl Bueller. <laughs> Bueller. <laughs> um, Bueller. Bueller. Uh, Carl Bueller's uh, linguistic theory. Then he's going to use that theory to try to propose his own theory about human minds in sections three uh, and four. And then in sections five and six, that's where he tries to drive home the point that human beings can somehow step outside of determinism. Um, and that's where I think the essay starts to get a little weak. But we should probably go through each chunk of the essay. Um, but before we do that, do you have any kind of higher level comments before we start diving into the details? Um, I don't think... Uh, one thing that actually came to mind that's not entirely relevant to this when you were speaking is that you actually don't even have to... Okay, so I would argue humans are chaotic, probably examples of chaotic systems, but to talk about the unpredictability of like humans and human knowledge, all that good stuff. You actually don't even have to grant that. All you have to grant is that humans interact with one complex system in their hmm. life. Right. And we know that because weather, right. Predicting nice. the weather is complex yeah, system. Nice. So as soon as you have one drop of a chaotic system in an otherwise nicely unchaotic system, it spoils like everything, right. It like yeah. spread it's, it's, it's chaos spreads everywhere. And yeah. so even just the, if everything else was like perfectly, um, unchaotic, and then you just drop the fact that the weather is chaotic in there. It kind of spoils everything. Yeah, um, nice, nice. Other than that, I got nothing. Let's uh, let's do this. Nice. Yeah. So I, I think we should try to give them the the punchline as quickly as possible. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna so let you let, do that I'm, gonna, I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna attempt to to do that. So okay. okay. Um. So first, let's discuss Carl Bueller's uh, four functions of language. Three. Um. And uh, excuse me. Yeah. Three functions of language to which Popper will add the fourth. Um. In 1918, Bueller proposed that the three functions of language are the expressive function, the signaling function, and the descriptive function. And to this, Popper adds the fourth, the argumentative function. So you have expressive, expressing an internal state, signaling, signaling to an outsider, describing, describing some objective thing in the world, and four, arguing, arguing a case. Um, so you can... Think of, say, a bird. A bird will chirp when it's maybe relaxed or sleepy. That would just be expressing its internal state. Mm -hmm. um, it could perhaps uh, chirp in such a way that it's trying to attract a mate. That would be a signaling. Signaling you're trying to get another organism to react to you. Yeah, or signaling to something. Yeah. Uh, to Stimulate a response from, yeah. from something else. So yeah. arguably birds don't have the descriptive function, but I was trying to think of an example of a, a non-human thing that had a descriptive function. I, was, I came up with one of uh, honeybees. So honeybees will try uh, find pollen as flowers and then come back to their, um, and dance, their right? bee and do their bee dance, right? And that's trying to describe the location of some nice uh, fl flower um but only humans have the argumentative function and the key thing with this four-part structure is that it's organized into a hierarchy um you can't do four without doing three two and one you can't do three without doing two and one you can't do two without doing one yeah so he says an argument serves as an expression insofar as it is an outward symptom of some eternal state it's also a signal since it may provoke a reply or agreement. It's about something, so it's a descriptive case as well. And then lastly, it's um, about giving reasons for holding this view, and therefore it's argumentative. So that's what initially attracted me to this essay, because I really like that theory of language. And I think mm -hmm. that that plays very nicely with Hugo Mercier's work. Um, and I think in other works, Popper builds on this theory of language um, for other purposes. But 
as like one of the big takeaways of this essay, if you'd get nothing from it besides that, I think that's valuable um, that you have this four part structure. Then he's going to use this to start trying to differentiate between things like thermometers and robots and instruments and human beings. Um, so I'll just skip right to the punchline because he's going to make some kind of convoluted arguments, but <laughs> the, uh, he says at the end of section 4.5, I'm just going to read the whole quote. This, I think, solves the problem of other minds. If we talk to people, and especially if we argue with them, we assume that they also argue that they speak intentionally about things, seriously wishing to solve a problem. Dot, dot, dot. In arguing with other people, uh, for example, with other minds, we cannot but attribute to them intentions, and this means mental states. We do not argue with a thermometer. So this is where the connection between the mind-body problem and language is going to come into play because he's going to make the case, which I can't tell if I believe it or not, but he's going to make the case that you cannot argue with something unless you attribute to it a mind. You're, you don't argue with, against a body. You don't argue against a thermometer. Um, you argue against a mind. Um, and in that way, the linguistic theory attacks monism, which says there are no such thing as minds, because to argue against something is to require the assumption of mental states. I don't know. So first, what do you think of that summary? And what do you think of that claim? And are you persuaded by it? Yeah, I'm not sure. So I mean, I think a lot of my hesitation comes from the fact that, like you said, I am a determinist and Popper's not. So so he hasn't got to the determinism part yet, right? So he, right now he's just arguing basically um, for the existence of minds by his claim about you can't argue with a machine. Right. But no, it... it it does hinge on determinism, though, because what he's arguing is the machine only, right? So when he's talking about thermometers, but then he also goes to some lengths to, to, to say that thermometer is like just an intuition pump. But you could also think about more complex machines yeah. that maybe have probabilistic reasoning built in, etc. And he says, you know, once we understand the causal behavior of the machine, yes. then you realize that its behavior is purely expressive or symptomatic, he says. And and he's there he's talking about the two lower functions of language, right? So remember, we have this hierarchy. The first two are expressive and signaling. So his case, his his claim here is that causal, these these machines, if if you're causal in nature, then you're only, you can only inhabit like the two lower functions of language right insofar as you're causal then any words you're causal, putting out there so insofar as you're a causal agent like as you are the prime like the locus of causality because well, a, a watch is causal right um a, a thermometer is causal right and a what no exactly and and those are only like expressive or symptomatic like a, a thermometer yes, yeah, 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 only yeah, yeah. expresses yeah. the temperature right it's mm -hmm. not it, it doesn't have the mind to try and signal something else to respond to it and it's not describing a state of affairs yeah, in the world that's so, just signaling an internal state so so yeah i guess my reading of this is he's saying like insofar as it's a it's a causal machine once you realize it's causal you stop arguing with it because <laughs> it's only expressive or symptomatic but i think humans are causal <laughs> right yeah, 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 yeah and so i can't i can't adopt that thesis and so humans are causal machines that are not purely expressive or symptomatic. Confused. Sorry, I think I'm still a tiny bit confused what you mean when you say causal machines. Well, I'm not. So he he's saying that. And so oh, I'm assuming okay. by ca by causal machine, he means like a de determined machine. Like it's it's fully. Yeah, exactly. But so but this this is why I get confused, because he, yeah. he, you know, he would say I think he would say humans are not 
are not deterministic. So yeah, that's yeah. what he would say, right? He would say humans yeah. are not deterministic machines. Yeah. And so we don't have causal behavior or at least physicalistic causal behavior. What, what, what does causal behavior mean? I'm kidding. Right. So, 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 you, all, so, like, so his quote. We, we, we aren't able to cause things? Is that what you mean? Like we're not well, able so to he, cause? So, okay. So he said, this is a quote from him. He says, so he's talking about the thermometer or even more complicated machines. So like pick your favorite machine learning program. Um, presumably this argument would apply to them as well. Mm-hmm. He says, once we understand the causal behavior of the machine, we realize that its behavior is purely expressive or symptomatic. So I'm taking this to mean, right? So, and then he says, in arguing with other people. So, okay, so not the causal behavior of a machine, but once we understand how the machine works, like once we understand what causes the machine to do stuff. So yeah, once we I understand guess, yeah, the, that's true. he says causal behavior, but once we understand what has caused the behavior of the machine, we no longer argue with it. Um, right. So I, I totally picked up on this, this sentence too, because he seems to be saying that there's a fundamental limit to our knowledge here. Exactly. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, so he's yeah. saying one, once we fully understand any complex machine, we reduce it to an automatic pilot, not worth arguing with. Right. Exactly. Two humans are not automatic pilots. So three, we can never fully understand humans. Something has to give there. Right. And I think yeah. he's going to want, he, he basically says that, uh, Either we can never fully understand human beings or human beings are automatons, um, something like like that. And so right. he's going to want to reject the humans are automatons. So that leaves the conclusion that we can never fully understand human beings. And that seems a little unpoparian. Um, yeah, agreed. So at first I was pretty harsh against this thesis, but I think there is something to the point that once we understand how um, like a machine works we stop arguing with it yeah you're right it is compelling to a certain degree um like yeah. you you don't care okay so like take gpt3 yeah you know very advanced and can spit out a lot of stuff that looks very much like human conversation yeah but people wouldn't take offense at what gpt3 yeah. was saying right or you wouldn't die on a hill trying to convince trying to change its mind about something um presumably that's because you know that it's not I mean, it, it kind of does fall in line with the thesis, right? You you kind of you kind of know that it do, it's not in ha- it doesn't have mental states, yeah, right? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, just yeah. a bunch of linear algebra, and you don't argue with linear algebra. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's um okay. So I guess yeah, one remark and one question. The remark is this: so close to talking about consciousness, but he never mm. brings up that word, right? Because yeah, it, yeah, it yeah, seems yeah. like it's... you could equip you could make a similar argument where you're saying you only argue with conscious agents, right? Like, like it, ado- having a mental state is presumably sort of synonymous with being conscious, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like he's trying to wrestle with when things become conscious and not. Um, yeah, nice. I don't know what to do with that, but that's just a... Well, it's like, like a, there was a thing hovering in the back of my head as I read this chapter that was like, I feel like he's trying to deal with consciousness but <laughs> yeah, he's not well, talking well, about he's, it. he's talking about the existence of minds and mental states right? right and that is almost a synonym for being conscious or not being conscious what one question for you is like at what point would you start arguing with, with a, a machine? machine i was thinking that same thing <laughs> yeah. yeah like it's, yeah it's like i was thinking about uh data from star trek and hmm. i think that if a machine got sufficiently com- like so popper wants to say that a machine can never argue, no matter how complicated. Right. And I want exactly. to say something like, if a machine gets complicated enough, it picks up the ability to argue. Mm-hmm. And I'm not willing to swallow the pill that we could never 
teach a machine to argue. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just want to say we don't know how the hell to do it yet. But Popper would want to say that you could never teach a machine to yeah. to argue, and thereby putting a fundamental putting human beings and machines in fundamentally different categories. Yeah. Um, but I just don't necessarily buy that. I just think we have we're so ignorant as to how human beings work that it seems hubristic to say that human beings have achieved some level of complexity that man-made machines could never achieve. Yeah, it's weird. Like, do you think Popper would just say AGI is fundamentally impossible for us? Yeah, I think we, he would. We're, not, yeah. we're only dealing in like the physical when we're dealing, you know, we're only dealing in like machine hardware and input, output, et cetera. Um, and we can never, you can't work directly. Yeah, like what the hell would he say there? Like you can't work directly in the world of ideas or you can't get, so you can't, I like, think he specifically says it. So in section four, you know, the essay is going to be dense when he numbers all of it. I know, I know. <laughs> that was intimidating. But yeah, section four, <laughs> paragraph 4.23, he says, uh, if the behavior of such a machine becomes very much like that of a man, then we may mistakenly believe that the machine describes and argues, just as a man who does not know the workings of a radio may mistakenly think that it describes and argues. Hmm. Yet an analysis of its mechanisms teaches us that nothing of the kind happens. The radio does not argue, although it expresses in signals. So I think he would want to say that we could never Fascinating. Um, produce AGI. Yeah. Or at least if we want AGIs to be like a complex machine. Like he says straight out, um, a machine arbitrarily complex to be as complex as to match right. the behavior of a, of a man. Right. Um, I think he would. And, and I think maybe huh. just that's where I just flat out disagree with him. Like it just seems like it's presupposing that human beings are somehow special material that can do special things that other materials can't do yeah yeah i mean like he 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 doesn't deny evolution so like mm -hmm. like how does he think like presumably there's some incremental steps to like working in the world of ideas right yeah that we could also replicate in trying to build machines anyway yeah it's interesting so so i guess yeah this section the machine argument is is just hard for me because i'm not entirely sure I mean, just that sentence, right? I can't get by that sentence. Like, once we understand yeah. the causal behavior of the machine, we realize its behavior is purely expressive or symptomatic. It's like, well, no, because I think humans are also fundamentally deterministic, and so yeah. but we don't have purely expressive or symptomatic uh, behavior. Um, we have these these higher capacities. He's talking about descriptive and argumentative. So, and interestingly, even Deutsch thinks that AGI is possible. Yeah, definitely. And so, so I think he would probably reject this too, as the the hair to popper. It's good nice to check it against his intuitions as well do you want to talk about this causal theory of naming section yeah okay i <laughs> you do your best to explain this one. okay 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 <laughs> okay so yeah i'm just going to give you the uh, the brief argument and then my interpretation and then we'll see yeah. where we disagree yeah so basically i think you alluded to it earlier so poppers considers a machine that says mike every time a cat enters into its field of vision Okay, so now we're talking about the the role of the world of cause and effect. We're, we're considering causation mm -hmm. now, right? So we have the cat entering the field of vision, which is the cause. The effect is that the machine says Mike. Okay, and so it's a probably a machine to make, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't even take into account the cat's personality. What yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so we'd and probably who names their cat Mike. Great. Also. <laughs> <laughs> sorry hey our fucking dog is named max okay it's not oh, far right. off so let's yeah that's a good point, good point. <laughs> um okay so you might think a priori like oh this is like a perfect simplistic example of cause and effect of this machine doing that but popper 
what I think he he takes issue with this example to a certain extent because he he his claim is that it requires uh, sort of a prior interpretive causal framework. And he sort of drills into the causation example. So he says, like, why did we choose the causal chain here to be the the moment the cat enters the frame and the machine saying Mike? Right. Mm-hmm. There are many other factors at play that also are important to the situation that we might have focused on right Mm -hmm. so we might we might have focused we might have started the causal chain before talking about like the electricity running into the machine um or slightly after talking about like the photons that are reaching the machine's sensory apparatus whatever Mm -hmm. that happens to be and or we might end it there's no reason we are ending it at the word mike why don't we end it for example at the word ike Mm-hmm. Right, which is like the last the last part of Mike. Um, or why doesn't it end after the cat has left the field of vision um, at some internal state of the machine when it's like reset to zero, right? Or reset back to, to the loop it, it began at. Um, mm-hmm. And so just his point here in providing all these examples is to say there are many causal chains that we might have focused on, right? Or mm-hmm. aspects of this causal chain we might have focused on. Um, there's no reason why it had to be like the cat entering the field of vision and and the machine saying Mike. And so what I think he's saying here is that you can't say that this situation um, required any sort the the causality was built into this situation because it required a human framing on yeah. top of it. And so you're the whole. So when you talk about this, you talk about the fact of the cat causing the machine to say Mike. Um, what you're missing is that it's a, it required a human to actually frame the situation that way. Without mm-hmm. a human, there's just like a bunch of disjoint facts mm-hmm. about the situation and just like shit, like, you know, a bunch of things preceded other things. Um, and it's actually not clear what caused what. Mm-hmm. Uh, you needed that interpretive framework that was imposed on it by a human. And so your whole discussion about causation actually required a human to do the work for you and Mm -hmm. therefore humans are always the first movers um of like causal chains right you always need that human to introduce like i guess causation occurs at that level of our ideas of human ideas and so you need humans to impose those ideas on the situation for the concept of causation to actually make sense yeah and then he he's trying to argue the thesis that it's not possible to have a causal physical theory of descriptive and argumentative functions um, because any physical chain of causes requires a human interpretive framework that says when the cause starts and when the cause ends. And so he's focusing on the naming of a cat because he takes that as the simplest case of description and wants to say, well, if we can't even do something as simple as naming a cat, then no causal physical theory of description or argumentative functions is possible because we can't even do the simplest one at the bottom of level three. So there's no way we're going to be able to do three or four. Mm. Um, And then in the following paragraph, he says, so it's true that the presence of Mike in my environment may be one of the physical causes of my saying, here's Mike. But if I say, should this be your argument, then it's contradictory because I've grasped or realized that it is so then there is no physical cause analogous to Mike. I do not need to hear or see your words in order to realize that a certain theory is contradictory. Um, the analogy is not to Mike, but to my realization that Mike is here. So where I think this fails is he 
so he wants to say that realizations are somehow the beginning of the causal story. Mm-hmm. But a realization, you can have a realization only if you've had other realizations, which go back into your history, like consider yeah, math exactly. to have like one realization and level of math, you need to have realized other stuff too. And so the same argument seems to apply. Like the causal chain of realizations and of non-abstract things also goes back. And you, so if I realize something, it's not because I have freely chosen to realize it. It's, it's the realization has happened to me. It's, it's like, if you could just choose to realize stuff whenever you want, <laughs> then we would just re- be realizing things all day. Yeah. Um, but we can't do that. So realizations happen to us. And so I don't think I'm persuaded by the idea that somehow moving it to the non-physical gets around the problem which he has highlighted, which is that there's human interpretation which arbitrarily chooses which part of the causal chain to look at, right? And I'm like, I'm happy to grant that ideas have causal power, but I'm not happy to grant that we somehow are the first movers or the creators of the chain of causation because any... Yeah. non-physical realization we have is due to other non-physical things which have caused caused it does that make sense i, I don't know if i've yeah no totally yeah i think the example of uh us we would just be realizing stuff all day is a great <laughs> great example yeah. um, it would be so nice right? yeah i mean i i'm i'm just it seems to prove too much right like this seems mm. to this argument like couldn't you apply this now to anything and be like well there was no causation before humans existed like it all required a human interpretive framework. So we can't say hmm. like, like the big bang, not cause this, you know, a bunch of stardust and then stars to accumulate, like, like hmm. to not be able to talk about causation uh, without humans in the picture seems like a very poor physical theory that you've built, hmm. right? Like, are we just going to talk about like accumulations of facts when we talk about like how stars form and stuff? Like, I, I just, I don't quite understand what he's trying to say here like what you know like so i I kind of get what he's trying to say so he's trying to argue that we cannot exclude minds from the conversation when we're talking about chains of causation so minds have causal power uh, to which i would say yes i agree but a mind isn't somehow outside of the chain of causation minds are and non-physical things are also caused by other non- by physical and non-physical things. And so to the to the extent that the point of this essay is to argue that minds exist, I think that it's achieves its goal. Hmm. Um, but to the extent that he's trying to argue against determinism and argue that somehow minds are exempt from the laws of causality, I think it fails. Nice. So I think he goes a bit beyond what the point of the essay initially was. And in that mm-hmm. sense, I think he's, he's, um, uh, is, is where I struggle with it. Yeah. But, uh, but if we go back to the mind body problem and the title of the essay, again, uh, language and the body mind problem, I'm persuaded that the linguistic theory, which he's using to argue for the existence of minds, I'm persuaded that that's, that's, he's made some progress on, on that. Mm, nice. Um, actually, that's a nice demarcation. And actually that makes more sense of the machine argument because, what he's pointing to there is like what well, the behavior of a machine and a person might be identical mm-hmm. before you realize what's causing the machine to behave in its way. So you might not be able to tell that GPT-3 is GPT-3 mm-hmm. before you someone tells you, right? Yeah. Um, but then the fact that you actually act differently once you realize this GPT-3 shows that 
you're taking mental states seriously. There is yeah. such a thing as you attributing mental states to people. Yeah. yeah nice. Right. Because you start treating them differently after you realize that fact. Yeah. Um, and so if that was all the machine argument is, was trying to show, then I agree that it's successful. But insofar yeah. as it's trying to show that humans are not deterministic, then it's confusing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Nice. Totally agree. Yeah. Um, so, I don't have too much to say about chapter 13, where chapter 13 is just a reaction to a reaction. So somebody, uh, I forgot the professor's name. Let me. Wilfred Sellers. Yeah. So I guess uh, Professor Wilfred Sellers responded to, to this essay. Um, and then chapter 13, Popper responds to Willard's response. When I read that, I found it to be so totally in the weeds that I got really nothing out of <laughs> yes. it. <laughs> I don't know if if you have much to say about it, but uh, but my reaction is that any reader of conjectures or refutations could pretty much safely skip this chapter, and they will not miss too too much. But um, but totally. maybe you have more. I, I think I made say. the mistake of trying to read that. Like I read chapter twelve through, yeah. and then I went right on to chapter thirteen, which I think was a huge mistake. Hmm. I think maybe you have to really wrestle with chapter twelve, and then maybe read chapter thirteen and try and yeah. decide what it's saying. But uh, even then, I think it's it's pretty. Uh, I mean, Popper's just a stickler, right? He wants everyone yeah. to understand him exactly as he understands himself, and he will go mm-hmm. to great lengths to ensure that that is the case. And I think thir- chapter thirteen is just an illustration of that fact. So I think that's part of the reason we're lumping chapters twelve and thirteen together because we're not going to have much to say about chapter thirteen <laughs> yeah, totally. in, in particular. It's a chaotic chapter. It is a chaotic chapter. <laughs> <laughs> Touché. It's like seven um, fucking pages too. Actually, we yeah. should have said that at the beginning for the listener. Like, all this confusion is deriving from like a seven-page chapter, <laughs> which is actually maybe part of the problem because he didn't take time to actually explain himself. Like, maybe it would be yeah. better if it was like a thirty-page chapter. And yeah, he actually yeah, said yeah. what he fucking was thinking. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know if I have much more to say about it. Um, I think this will be tough listening for people who haven't read read the chapter. But uh, yeah, sorry about that. Hopefully but hopefully, there's some some nuggets in there. Of humor yeah. got you through it. <laughs> I actually think I think your yeah. general takeaway, though, the way you framed it was very nice that insofar as the chapter is aimed at sort of proving the existence of separate mental states that are worth talking about uh, beyond physical states, it does achieve its goal if you mm. put in the work to understand it. But then insofar as it tries to disprove determinism, it, it completely fails and falls yeah. on its face. And so that's kind of how I'm choosing to read it. Um, yeah. That's a nice that's a nice uh, that's a nice little critique. Yeah, maybe that's a good place to leave it then for today. Um, I nice. have nothing else to add. So I don't know what we're going to do next, but something uh, hopefully a little less confusing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll choose our chapters carefully next time. <laughs> but all right, man, this is a lot of fun. Yeah, dude. Okay, talk to you soon.